But that's two weeks from today. I'll remind you about it again next Sunday. So I have four states left to go before I visited every one of the lower 48. Uh, have Hawaii because our daughter lives there and we've had a chance to be there. I don't have Alaska yet. But I told Cindy I've got our summer all figured out for, for next year because actually if you kind of do it in an arc, I could get all four states I think in about 10 or 12 days. So we have to go north up to Minnesota. I've been to Minnesota, Cindy's extended family's there. But then the states that we can get are North Dakota and then Montana. That shouldn't be too long of a drive across those two states. Uh, some of you are laughing because you've been there. Then I've got to go southwest into Idaho and then down into Nevada, and then I'll have all the 48 lower states. So I'm sharing this with Cindy. I'm like, I think this is going to be, you know, we could, you know, we could just drive and drive and drive and kill ourselves and do it like three days, but that won't be any fun. You know, we can stop a little bit. We can do it like seven or eight days. And so she's like, well, let me, let me look at the map. And then she's like, well, I'll fly and meet you when you get to this city. And then when you get over there to, to that city, and then Idaho, that looks pretty nice. There's probably some shops there. And I'll meet you along the way. We are getting ready to embark this morning. We are embarking this morning on a uh, study on the topic of discipleship. Uh, I learned my lesson in Romans not to say how long a sermon series was going to be. It will be at least this whole school year. Uh, it may go longer, but it will be at least this school year. And the reason I tell you that silly story to begin with is because a lot of us can think of discipleship in terms of places in our lives where we kind of get spiritual from time to time. Maybe Sunday morning, it's like, okay, I come to church, that's kind of a time to put on my discipleship hat. And maybe I'm in a, a, a couple's Bible study, or I'm in a men's morning Bible study, or, or we're going to Joplin to help out on a service project. Those are the moments where my discipleship really counts, and I can kind of parachute in and do that, and then I can get on with the rest of life. Now, I'm not saying that my wife isn't reasonably sane to want to fly into some of those spots instead of driving, but that's not discipleship. Discipleship is a lifelong movement. It's a lifelong journey of following Jesus as Savior and Lord. When you think about discipleship, and I'm going to say this until you're sick of hearing it, and that might just be by this morning, by the time we're done. Discipleship is movement. It is movement. Discipleship is spiritual movement. It is, it is a movement of our heart and our soul and our emotions as they're transformed by the beauty and the glory that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a movement not only a spiritual, but it's also an intellectual movement. When you open your Bible, God forbid that you would turn your brain off. When you come to worship on Sunday morning, you go, well, this is where we sit politely and kind of listen to that guy talk about stuff. No, when we come to worship, we come to worship with our intellect and with our reason and with our logic. It's a movement of intellect, but it's also a physical movement. The choices that I make in life, the decisions that you make about how you're going to spend your time, how I'm going to spend my money, how I'm going to spend my energies. What are the priorities going to be in my life? The actual physical movement of my life, if I am a follower of Jesus, is about discipleship. And so it's a worthy study for us to embark on this morning. Give you a little bit more of an overview. This fall, we're going to divide up into three main sections. Today, and for the next two Sundays, going all the way through the party in the park, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, which we'll get to in a couple minutes, and we're going to look at kind of the, the birth of a disciple. How are we born into a relationship with God through His power and through His grace? We're going to study that for the next three weeks. That's going to kind of be foundational to our, to our study. The second thing we're going to do then is we're going to move into discipleship as worship, because 
myself included, often I have, and I think probably some of you do too, a too narrow view of worship. We think of worship, well, that's what we go do on Sunday morning. Uh, some of you maybe go to a Christian school and you have, a, you have chapel during the week and you go, you go to chapel and that's part of worship, but then we go on with the rest of our lives. And while we will have a sermon on corporate worship, what we do on Sunday mornings, worship is much broader and much richer and much fuller than that. So it deserves a significant amount of our, of our time and attention. Springboarding right off of, of that, we will look at, at the idea of discipleship in terms of generosity. That will take us right up to the Sunday before Thanksgiving. So then we'll take a break and go into our Advent series. And then in the spring of the year, we're going to switch gears just a little bit. We're going to spend most of our time in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, which is in, in your Bible. If you look at it, it says the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to look at attitudes and actions of disciples of Jesus all through that passage, both actions, lifestyle, and attitude, the way we think they're woven together in this tapestry that is the sermon that Jesus uh, speaks in these chapters. And we'll look at attitudes like humility, and passion, and anger, and lust. We'll look at our actions. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus and be married to somebody? What, is, what does Jesus say about our marriages? What if I, I want to get revenge on somebody? Uh, what does Jesus say about that action? What does it mean to be a disciple and care for the poorest of the poor? How should disciples pray? So we're going to look at attitudes and actions in the spring. We'll see how far we get, and then we'll, we'll go from there. But ultimately, again, what I want to come back to on a regular basis is this. Discipleship is movement. If you want to put it into two simple words, it's following Jesus. I've given you four different passages on the screen this morning, one from each of the four Gospels. If you've studied the Bible a little bit, you may know that the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called the Synoptic Gospels, which means they're very similar. They tell the, the history of Jesus' life, the events of Jesus' life, the teaching of Jesus' life in very similar ways, so they're called Synoptic. John goes in a, goes in a, a completely different direction. John has a very different style of writing. So even when he tells similar stories, they come out a little bit differently. Rarely do you see all four Gospels having the same quote. You'll see it a lot of times in three, but rarely do you see it in four. So when you see it in four, if you're a student of the Bible, that ought to make you kind of sit up and go, this must be important that God would make sure it was in all four Gospels. In all four Gospels, the writers tell us of Jesus inviting people to do what? Come and follow me. It's individuals, or as a group. So when I think about my life of discipleship, if you're here this morning and you're a believer in Jesus, you have trusted him as your savior and as your Lord, we need to think in terms of following him in every area of our life. If you're here this morning and you're wondering about the claims of Christianity, I don't want to be simplistic, but it can be boiled down to following Jesus. When you look at us, if you're, if you're wondering what Christians should look like, if you're wondering what, what type of characteristics people who, who claim to be disciples of Jesus should have, they ought to reflect our Lord and our Savior. If you go to a church, you find a church where people don't talk in terms of brokenness and don't talk in terms of, of, of understanding that we ourselves are sinners who are saved by grace. If you find yourself in a place and if Green Tree ever becomes a place of spiritual arrogance, you should run out of here as fast as you possibly can. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the, 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 the heart of the disciple, is this profound love for Christ because of what he has done for people who don't deserve it. 
And that's where we're going to start this morning. Before I get into Ephesians 2, though, I'm going to take you just down one very uh, quick side road in a passage in John 3, because the first movement in discipleship, or if you want to say the first movement toward discipleship, that's okay too, is really about coming from death to life. Let me say that again. The first step in discipleship is about moving from death to life. There's a guy who was a would-be disciple of Jesus. He was coming to check out Jesus' ministry. This is in John chapter 3. And his guy's name is Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is in a crisis because he's a really religious guy. I mean, like he would put all of us collectively to shame with his religiosity. He had every answer for everything, and he, and he always tried to do everything exactly the right way. And Jesus comes and says, you guys have got it all wrong. It's not about you saving yourself. It's about God having mercy on you. And Nicodemus is scratching his head. So he comes to Jesus late at night. And he has this private one-on-one conversation with Jesus, which we pick up a couple of verses into it. And Nicodemus is, is paying Jesus a compliment in the verse before this, which I didn't put up there. He's like, we know you're a really good teacher. You were sent from God. And he's kind of placating Jesus a little bit. And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Okay, how many of you uh, are, are good at sarcasm? How many of you use sarcasm? You're a little more honest than the 9 o'clock service. The 9 o'clock service was like, there were like three people raised their hands, so they have a problem with telling the truth. This is, this is sarcasm. Nicodemus, I mean, we read our Bibles, and it's almost like we kind of stand back. You know, we can't read it the wrong way. Nicodemus like, Jesus, really? Okay, excuse me. Let me climb back into my mother's womb before. I mean, he just can't get his mind around this. Jesus, what on earth are you talking about? So Jesus takes another run at it. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, notice that capital Spirit is not your Spirit, but the Holy Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. So here's a guy who's thinking about following Jesus. And he comes to him and he says, what's the story here? And Jesus says, before anything else, you need to understand that you're spiritually dead and you've got to be reborn. That's where we pick up the passage in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Hear the word of God. And you... We're dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, Because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are, God, we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the reign of God's holy and perfect word. To Him alone be glory. 
Let's pray for just a moment. Father, as we move now past just kind of the broad introduction of discipleship and we begin to look at this first step, what it means to come from death into life, Lord, it, it may be confusing to a lot of us because we kind of pinch ourselves and look around and say, wait a minute, I am alive. <laughs> I'm not dead. And yet, Lord, there's a, there's a deeper and more profound truth that you are, are wanting to get at this morning with us. Father, I pray that you would help us to worship you with our minds. Help us to consider what you say. Father, your word is truth. It doesn't contain truth. It doesn't have some truth. It is truth. Lord, there's no way I can do that justice. There's no way I can explain it fully. It is too far beyond my limited human understanding and thinking. But you make it known to us through your spirit. So, Father, we don't come here to hear the words of man or the philosophy of man or Tom's ideas about this text. Lord, we come here to hear your truth, and we pray that it is that which you would reveal to us. Forgive me my sin. Please don't let me stand in the way or be, a, be the hindrance that someone doesn't hear it this morning. Father, speak to every person in this room, wherever we are in our journey, whether we're a disciple or an anti-disciple or somewhere in between. Lord God, reveal yourself to us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. What I want to get after this morning in this text, what I think this text gets after this morning is, what is the human condition apart from the grace of God? So if you take, if you take God's mercy and grace through Christ out of the equation, what is human condition? Because that applies to every person in this room. Every one of us, uh, maybe we're in Christ now, but there was a time prior to that when we were not. What was our condition? Or if we are apart from Christ now, what is our condition? We need to understand that. The second and follow-up to that is then what is, how does God respond to that? How do I look in his eyes? What's my status before God? We want to try to pick that apart in the first three verses of this passage. And as I said, we're going to take three weeks on this. We're just doing verses one, two, and three this morning. And I'll tell you right up front, be honest with you, I'm giving you the bad news this morning, okay? There's not going to be a whole lot of glib comments, a lot of silly stories that we can all laugh and chuckle. This condition that we have apart from Christ is, is no laughing matter. But you gotta, we all have to hear this news in order to understand the profoundness of what we'll, what we'll be able to begin to look at next Sunday. The first aspect Paul talks about in the human condition is that we are spiritually dead due to self-inflicted wounds. I, I want you to see the, the, the descriptive terminology of that statement. We're not just spiritually dead, i.e. victims, like someone murdered us, like we couldn't control what happened. We are culpable, you are culpable, I am culpable for the state in which we find ourselves apart from Jesus. We have done this to ourselves. You can't look to the right, you can't look to the left, you can't look to your, to, you know, what happened to you as a child or what didn't happen to you as a child. We can't blame anyone for this condition. And that's important to know because we live in a generation where we basically define ourselves with two terms in this country. We are consumers and we are victims. Those are the two most prevalent terms that we use amongst ourselves when we describe ourselves. And Scripture is saying there, there are moments when we can be victimized. Scripture is not saying that. But if we're going to look at our spiritual condition honestly, we have to understand that we bear some responsibility. So Paul says in, in verse 2, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, and we'll get to that part in just a minute. Two words that need description. You see them here on the screen. The first thing Paul says, you're dead. Why? Because of trespasses, intentionally 
crossing the line, willful disobedience. You've, you've had this experience in your life where you've said, you know, your, your mom or dad has said, don't do that. And you said, well, I think I'll try it anyway. You know, as a child, you maybe said to mom and dad, thank you for the advice, appreciate the input, but now I'm going to go and, and work it out on my own. Or maybe as, uh, as a parent, you've had a child that's kind of responded to your instruction that way. It's not that you didn't know. It's not that you couldn't understand. I, I was driving home from Kansas City late yesterday and coming up through Chesterfield Valley and came over the crest of the hill, and there was a state trooper sitting right on the side of the road, and I went, I can't believe I'm this close to home and maybe going to get pulled over because I might have slightly been a little bit going over the speed limit. Um, I was being victimized by the other cars that were going fast too. Uh, <laughs> get my point. And I'm like, I, I'm guilty. <laughs> I went over the line. I knew what the speed limit was, and I was doing a little bit more. We all can understand that. Every one of us has those moments of defiance, and God says that, that we are spiritually defiant against him, and that has caused our spiritual death. The second word that Paul used to describe here is a failure to do what's right. That's what sin literally means. We think of sin in terms of something evil and awful, like you, you intentionally hurt someone. That's really technically is a trespass. A sin is just not getting there. You know you should do something. Gosh, I see that person that needs a little bit of help. I know I should take time to help them. I'm just too busy. I, I, I don't have time to stop. Oh, I know if I just said a kind word to that person, it would mean a lot, but uh, I got to look up their cell number. I, well, I'm just too busy. I'm going to go on. We don't live up to that which we should. And again, every one of us has felt that moment of failure where we know we've blown it. And so Isaiah uh, in the Old Testament rightly points out this attitude and our culpability. But your iniquities, he says to the people of Israel, have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Our choices, our willful decisions have caused our spiritual death. It's caused us to be separated from our God. I'm going to give you a quote by a guy named John Stott who's, who's a brilliant mind. This is a little bit longer. It's about a page and a half, but it's worth considering this morning. As Stott kind of says, no, wait a minute. People are alive. They're not really dead. How, how should we look at this? He says, are we to say that such people, if Christ does not save them, are dead? Yes, indeed. We must and do say this very thing. For the sphere which matters supremely, which is neither the body nor the mind nor the personality, but the soul, they have no life. And you can tell it, they are blind to the glory of Jesus Christ and deaf to the voice of the Holy Spirit. They have no love for God, no sensitive awareness of His personal reality, no leaping of their spirit towards Him in the cry, Abba, Father, no longing for fellowship with His people. They are as unresponsive to Him as a corpse. So we should not hesitate to affirm that a life without God, however physically fit and mentally alert the person may be, is a living death. And that those who live it are dead even while they are living. To affirm this paradox is to become aware of the basic tragedy of the fallen human existence. It is that people who were created by God and for God should now be living without God. Indeed, that was our condition until the Good Shepherd found us. As I said a few moments ago, none of these, this, this um, truth is new to us. We know what it means to be defiant. I've got a little picture of defiance on the, on the screen there. And we've all had that little face lurking in our hearts. We've all had those moments where we've, we've put our hands on our hips and we've said to God, you can't make me. 
but probably every person in this room also knows the pain and the sorrow of that failure. And you're ashamed at times. You know, I should have done that. How could I not have followed through with a commitment I made to that person? How could I not have been kind to that? It would have only taken me a moment and we literally put our head in our hands and we're filled with shame and we're filled with angst. I, I'm communicating with a friend of mine right now who's going through a real hard time and um, he hasn't responded all that great. And I, and I wrote him a note and I said, you got you to gotta let go of that shame. That's what's controlling you right now. You got to let go of that. And it doesn't come across as shame. It comes across as, as, as a different kind of emotion. And he wrote me back and he, I could hear the tears falling on the other end of the email. It's just like, I don't, I don't know how to get out of that. I don't know how to get past that. I, I don't know what to do. And that's where the gospel comes into play. And we'll get to that point. But every one of us can relate to this idea of defiance or this idea of failure. That's part of our human condition that has made us spiritually dead. But Paul says it's actually even worse than that. Look at verses 2 and 3 of chapter 2. Dead in our trespasses and sins. And how does that look? In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We are enslaved, to just, just put one word to it. We're enslaved, first of all, by the world. Paul says, the way in which we once went following the course of this world. What is Paul saying? Is he saying that the cosmos itself is evil and awful and we should, we should just refuse to engage? No. He's talking about a philosophy or a worldview that excludes God. And you, you, read, you saw Stott's comments, how we were made to be in a relationship for God, but we're trying to do this existence without him. Robert De Niro is one of my favorite actors. He, he may be the best actor of, of his generation. He's certainly in the top two or three. And he was interviewed recently, and, and his, he's an avowed atheist. He, he, he kind of goes back and forth, but he says, it said to the, to the guy doing the interview, he said, I don't believe there's a God. But then he paused and he said this, if there is a God, he has a lot to answer for. Now, what does that mean? It means that, that Mr. De Niro has a world philosophy, of, a view of this world, that takes God out of it, unless there really is a God, and then he looks at the mess the world's in, and he assigns the blame to God. He says that everything that bad that's happened here, God has to answer for that. That's a worldly philosophy. It puts man at the center, where we can sit on the judgment seat and rule whether God is performed appropriately as we see it. Paul says that's what we ran after apart from Christ. We followed right along with that worldly philosophy. But he also says there's another power at work, this ruler of the air. And by air, he doesn't mean like a bright, sunny, beautiful, glorious, you know, August that we've had. I mean, can you believe the month we've had? I, we, Cindy and I went on vacation to Wisconsin, and we went to Michigan. And every day I would look at the weather back in St. Louis, and I'd be like, why am I spending this money? I could have just, just stayed home. And enjoy this, you know, this unbelievably glorious weather. That's not what that word air means. That air means a sense of fog, uh, a shroudedness, a darkness. We lived on Lookout Mountain when, uh, through college and right after we got married for nine years. Lookout Mountain's a beautiful place to live, right outside of Chattanooga, Tennessee. If you've ever driven down to Florida from here, you've probably gone through Chattanooga. You see the mountains in that area. Glorious place to live most of the year except for when the fog sets in. And you can literally be on Lookout Mountain. And where you could be driving down a street where if you look to your right, you could see the entire Lookout Valley. You could see all of downtown Chattanooga, and you literally couldn't see any of that. You, you can't see 20 feet in front of your car. 
I'm not making this up. I've literally driven my car. Look, I'm at where I roll my window down. I was looking for those little reflectors in the road so I could see and make sure I didn't drive over the, over the, over the cliff. The fog of the evil one. He wants us to be lost. And Paul says we followed right along. We wandered aimlessly, and it was our intention to do just that. That's the nature of man apart from Christ. Because why? We're motivated by the flesh. What does Paul say we followed? We, we wanted to follow the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were not duped into anything. This is our responsibility. We have created this self-centered world in which we live apart from Christ. I have two beautiful granddaughters. One's five years old and the other one's about 18 months old. We have another granddaughter on the way that's due, I think the 14th or the 16th, something like that in December. And we're with Nathan and Liz and I congratulated Nathan on his tax planning when I found out the baby was due before the end of the year. Um, But we were with her for about 24 hours, Friday and Saturday. And we got to, you know, play and run around. And I love the whole grandfather thing because all you do is like just keep giving them more ice cream. And, you know, they love you and it's really wonderful. And they're the, the two, you know, they're the, in the history of grandchildren, they're the best grandchildren that have ever walked the face of the earth, right? But every once in a while, you know what else they're really great at? They're really great at, they're really great at transgressing. <laughs> they're really great at sin. They're really good at getting into mischief. And every once in a while, that baby, Avery, who's 18 months old, she'll have this big smile on her face, and she'll look like directly at her mom and her dad. And while she's smiling, she'll do something she knows she's not supposed to do. She's not a victim. Nope, nobody's, nobody's pushing this kid. And usually it's something to get her sister in trouble or vice versa. And these are two of the greatest little transgressors I've ever seen in my life. They're super good at it. I bet they get even better the more they practice. We look at this and we say, we can't say the devil made me do it. We're, gl- we're gladly following along. Because when you take God out of the equation, the only other person that you want to sit on the throne is you. The human condition apart from Christ is ugly. That's the bottom line. And until we understand that, and until we accept that, until we embrace that, the pathway of discipleship will not be elusive. It will be impossible. You cannot follow Jesus and hold on to your goodness apart from him with a death grip. What is God's view of all of this? When God sees us apart from Christ, what is his reaction? And, and the word that I'm going to say, give us is condemned. Look at verse 3. How does Paul wrap up this wonderfully uplifting message, but, but very important message? We, we were following the desires of body and mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. If you want to know whether or not you can trust God, I would say look at two things. Look at how he responds in the Bible to sin, to transgressions, and look at his grace and his mercy. Those two things never change. God hates evil with a perfect hatred. When we think of someone's wrath, we think of somebody who's, you know, they're just going, they're, 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 they blow their top, we might say, or they, they lose their cool, or there's this emotional um, just craziness. They're just so angry right now, and you just, you know, everybody's going to suffer for it. Every, everybody's going to be in trouble. You know, one kid did something, now the whole family's in trouble. And we think of wrath in terms of unfairness. We think of wrath in terms of, you know, why don't you just settle down a little bit and get some perspective? God's wrath is not like that. There's no, there's no emotion in God's wrath. God doesn't wake up in a bad mood. God's wrath against sin is 100% 
um, specific every time and it never changes. He is steady. He will never compromise when it comes to evil. And there's two reasons for that. The first is for his own name. Because God has said, I, I will not tolerate evil. But the second thing is this. When you look at human evil, and this is what De Niro was getting at, right? When he said God has a lot to answer for. Who really has a lot to answer for? We do. Why? Because my evil hurts you. When I put Tom on the throne, and when I live for myself, and I walk around in that willfully, in that sinful fog, as if Jesus mattered nothing to me, somebody's going to get hurt. It might be me, but more often than not, it's going to be somebody else. I'm going to take somebody with me. And God loves his children and loves his people. And when we live in a way that rejects his truth, it automatically harms others. God, what parent would look at someone harming their child? Say, oh, that's too bad. Isn't that kind of funny how that happened? No. They would be filled with what? With indignation and wanting to protect their children. And God knows where our transgressions lead. Our transgressions lead to destructive life. So where does this leave us? Paul says it leaves us as children of God's wrath. We have to answer for our choices. We have to answer for those decisions we've made. That's where we are apart from Christ. There's no, there's no way I can turn it over to somebody else. I can't say, the devil made me do it, or gosh, Cindy put me in a bad mood, or the kids were, were misbehaving. I can't do anything but say it's on me. Uh, probably almost everybody here that has been here for a little while knows I'm a John Wayne fan. And uh, the movie True Grit, which John Wayne made first time, and then uh, Jeff Bridges made with the Coen brothers a couple of years ago, is actually based on a book um, by a guy named Portis who wrote it in the, in the mid-60s. And I actually read the book in the mid-80s when I was in college, and it follows the storyline pretty clearly. But for those of you that haven't seen the book or read the book or seen the movie, the main, one of the main characters is a little teenage girl named Maddie Ross. And Maddie Ross's father, Frank Ross, has been murdered, and she's seeking justice for her murder, murdered father. Now, Maddie Ross is probably 13 or 14 years old, and she goes to Fort Smith where her father's been murdered by his employee. So Frank Ross had gone to town with this guy named Tom Cheney, and they conducted their business, and afterwards they went to the local saloon, had a couple drinks. Well, Tom Cheney gets in a card game, and he gets drunk, and he thinks he's being cheated. So he's, he's pulling out his gun. He's going to start a fight. Well, his employer, Frank Ross, grabs him, takes him out of the bar, and saves him. He's doing something good for him. He, he's taking care of him. But Cheney in his drunken stupor can't get it, and he turns the gun on, his, on this guy who's being kind to him, and he shoots him, and he kills him. And then he reaches in his pocket, he steals his money, and he runs away. Maddie Ross comes to town, and because nobody's doing anything about the murder, she goes out and she hires this really tough, mean-spirited marshal. That's why he was a great character for John Wayne, because John Wayne was great at playing John Wayne. Um, she hires this marshal to go after the villain. Towards the end of the book, Towards the end of the story, Maddie Ross has actually been captured by the bad guys. There's a group of about five or six of them. And she actually got captured by them. And the leader of the group is a guy named Lucky Ned Pepper. And she's having a conversation with Ned Pepper. And Ned Pepper knows that Rooster Cogburn, the marshal, is closing in on him. And he knows he's a bad guy. He knows he's in really big trouble. He knows that he's cornered and there's no way out. And Maddie Ross is trying to talk some sense into him to give up. And one of the things she says to me, she goes, she goes, I have a great lawyer in Jay Noble Daggett. My lawyer can help you. And without flinching, Lucky Ned Pepper looks at Maddie Ross. He says, what I need is not a good lawyer. What I need is a good judge. He knew he stood condemned. He knew that the, the crimes that he had committed had to be paid. Friends, 
the first step in discipleship, believe it or not, <laughs> the first step in discipleship is you need a good judge. Let's pray. Father, I pray that the truth of this passage would sink into all of our hearts. Lord, we would like very quickly to pass over this passage and get to the, to the news of your mercy and your grace and, and the faith in which we can stand. Lord, we'll get there. Uh, this, is, this is all one message that goes together. But Lord, the first chapter says we've made a mess of it. We can't blame anybody else. We can't blame you. We have willfully sinned against you. We have willfully gone our own way. We have been that, def that defiant child. And Lord, we've fallen short. We haven't loved others the way we should. We, didn't, we haven't always done everything we could possibly do. And Lord, we as a congregation as well as individuals, if we're going to follow you, we need to own that. Not because I want everybody to just feel miserable and go around kicking themselves, but unless we understand that, we don't understand our need for a Savior. But Lord, once we, once we willingly look at your word and say, that's true about me, then the door of redemption flies wide open. And we can begin to see the glory and the beauty of your grace, which will cause us to be disciples filled with joy. Even in tough times, we'll be disciples filled with humility. Even when people pat us on the back and tell us we're good, we'll be disciples filled with the longing to, to love others well and to point them to Christ because we can't believe that Jesus would do something like that for me. So Lord, I pray for the right kind of conviction today that would just allow us to look at this and go, yep, it's true. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.